Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so happy to have a special guest here. We're so happy to have Emily sit here. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're so happy to get to talk with you today. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. (laughs) So, Em, can you tell us about yourself? Yeah. I started, I did one of the like NYU publishing programs right after college. So I was there for, for six weeks. And then I did what everyone does in New York of like working three jobs, doing a bunch of random stuff, ending up temping, getting a full-time job, ending up temping again. And I sort of accidentally fell into the niche of uh, foreign rights and sub rights, which I wasn't planning on. I went into, I think I wrote my cover letter about like how cool eBooks are. So oh. I thought that's what I was gonna do. But I, my mom's Chinese and my dad's Irish and I grew up in Japan. So I was really looking for something that would let me travel. And then I ended up in foreign rights and I was like, oh, this is perfect. And then after a while I was done with New York. So I sort of pieced out and went and did my master's in Scotland for a little while. And then I ran away and was a bartender for a little bit. And then I ended up back in some rights. So I've, that was sort of where I cut my teeth. And then I got hooked up with Ladderbird when my the main agent, Beth Marche, was trying to expand the agency. She was trying to be really like cognizant about the fact that she is a white or a white agent and trying to increase diversity in in the agent side as well as the author side. And so she had reached out to people of color in publishing, which I was sort of tentatively involved with to say, you know, what should I do? How should I get this out there? And so I had DM'd her privately to be like, hey, I'm really like, this is very cool that you are doing the work and you are trying to be very intentional about this. Also, here's my resume. <laughs> um, so that's sort of how I got hooked up and how I ended up where I am now. Fantastic. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about subrights for the people who aren't familiar? Yeah, subrights is really cool because it is the thing that makes publishers money, which is <laughs> sort of a joke, but sort of not. Subrights is anything that you do with a book that is not publishing the book. And because publishing works on an investment basis and it works on an advanced basis, a publisher is going to put a lot more money into a book before they get anything back from it versus subrights where they have now done all that investment. The book is printed. Subrights are audio rights. They're dramatization rights. They're first printing rights in um, in serials and magazines. Foreign rights is a big, big part of that. It's anything you can do to leverage the rights that you have outside of just straight publishing. I always think subrights when when my friends kind of go through, you know, publishing a book and then, you know, actually starting to hit the subrights thing. It always reminds me of Vegas where it's like ding, 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 like like things all of a sudden just like flashing all over the place. And it must be such an exciting space when you watch it kind of like go like that, you know, when you're doing that. Yeah. I also have like a very strange, so I was working at Scholastic and I was doing subrights for them and I was mostly doing like contracts for them, which I really love for some weird reason. Subrights is also great because it's part of the only publishing where like a contract is signed and then things happen versus like the contract will be signed at some point in the next five years, but let's publish the book anyways. I have fallen into this weird part of subrights that is co-editions, which are when you publish the book simultaneously in every language to lower the print cost. 
And so I had started at Scholastic and we were doing subrights. And then we had this really strange, like one-off project where we had to do a bunch of co-editions for some Harry Potter books. And mm-hmm. so I accidentally got like a bunch of exposure to that. And then I went over to, I did that later at Inside Editions where they do illustrated books and like art and making of kind of things that are very expensive. They're really beautiful, but they're really expensive to print. So it makes a lot of sense to print the Korean, the Japanese, the the English at the same time, because then you can just do one black plate change and every other plate stays the same. Mm-hmm. And then you can print 100,000 instead of 20,000 in a one-off and then it lowers the cost. So co-editions are a very strange little subset of subrights that I have found myself in. Can you tell us a little bit what you're looking for on the agent side? Yeah. So I am primarily commercial genre fiction with a really strong focus on people of color and queer people, both in the text and also on the the author side. I just, I am done with life on the reality side. And I have been since I was about 13. So would love to just have some fun fantasy uh, queer people. Nice. I saw a thing on TikTok recently, which is a recent obsession of mine, unfortunately. <laughs> it's, it's most of my social life now that I'm here. And it said something that I kind of related to in that they said, oh, did people say when you were a kid, did people come up to you and say, oh, you're an old soul? And I'm thinking, yes. And then they're like, that means you ran out of serotonin at 13. <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh no, <laughs> TikTok, the for you page is a little bit too personal today, as it often oh, is. So funny. <laughs> the algorithm is very uh, personal. <laughs> um, I'd love to know something you've changed your mind about in your time in the industry. Yeah, I think maybe new adult and ebooks. Mm-hmm. Because as, as I was saying before, I like ebook is what I read. I don't know if you've ever read um, Neil Stevenson's The Diamond, Diamond Age. Yeah, The Diamond Age is more or less part of the sci-fi that I'm moving away from, but is a very interesting sci-fi book about sort of the power of education. And it's about this book that has, that's a teaching book. And it's essentially what he was talking about was hyperlinking. And so you could read this book and then not have a teacher. You just read the book and it goes at the the developmental age that the author, that the, the child needs. And then if it needs to define a word, it like you click on the word and it defines it. And if you need cool. to know what the story is, it clicks on it and tells you the story of Theseus. And then, of course, the, the story is about like what happens when that book falls into a poor child's hands versus a rich child's hands. And what is the difference of the access to education? But the concept of hyperlinking books was super interesting to me, like five or six years ago, especially when ebooks were first coming out. People were like, ebooks going to revolutionize everything. We're never going to print a book again. What's happening with all of this? And then I realized later that, A, you know, the, the, the industry has kind of settled out into like, we still do like print books. There is still a reason for this. Part of it is, you know, Western civilization and their valuing of intellectual property. But part of it is also that I have chronic migraines and looking at things sucks, especially on screens. So I think I've changed my mind about sort of like how much ebooks are going to destroy the world as we know it. <laughs> and new adult continues to be a thing that I like flop back and forth on the fence about a lot because some people are trying to make it work and some people aren't trying to make it work. And then it's sort of like everyone tried to work on it and then just sort of dropped it. And then there's a couple champions still going for it. And I don't know if that's ever going to get picked up, but that's okay. So what's your take on new adults? We hear that a lot at the National Academy. You know, like it's new adult. Like, it's such a common question. I don't know what to. I don't. I don't know what to say. What, what's, yeah. what's your take on it? I think I. So part of what I realized 
after a while is that genre is where books sit on the shelf. And that always from, you know, I was, I was a literature person and I was B a comparative literature person. So genre is sort of an academic thing for me. So saying that there is no such thing as this new genre was like, that's stupid. Of course there is. But then when you come to it from like a commercial side of like, where does it actually live? Where do you go for it? Then I realized, okay, maybe that, that is a, an interesting division there. So I don't know. It's one of those things that I think people will have to all agree to do, or at least somebody's going to have to agree to support it from a commercial placement side as much as we would really love it from. I, I think it's cool. Like it's it's probably of what I read most for my personal stuff. Like I think that's most of what I read would fall into what new adult wants to be, but I don't know if it's ever going to show up on the shelf. Well, and it's interesting, too, because the two things you were just talking about are kind of related. You know, there isn't a specific new adult shelf, at least in most Barnes & Nobles that I've been to. But without that physical shelf, the digital shelf still exists. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, it is something that people can access and read. I think one thing that might have happened to new adult, my theory is that it had a real chance, is kind of like YA 2.0. I think it had a real chance and then... I think so many similar new adult romances set in college with kind of like a dominant man character and like a female protagonist who was often very hard on herself. I'll say that. I think that was so common. And we saw so many of those that a lot of people thought that that kind of book and new adult were the same exact thing. And therefore, if you were writing new adult, it was that when new adult had the potential to be so many different things. I also think, and this is going to be something that I always say, that like the people who were, this is rude, but I think the people who were there first kind of ruined it in, in sort of what you were saying of like, they, people thought that new adult just became this like sort of 50 shades of gray, like, oh, I'm so shy and reticent, but actually there's a lot to me. And here's a dominant man who's going to like save me. Like new adult, I think it has so much potential for, I think every genre has potential for people of color and queer people to really take those tropes and run with it in a way they haven't before. But new adult specifically, I think is very interesting because so many queer people have the, like their lives often don't start until they're 25, 26, 27, because maybe they've had a, a parent that, they, you know, their family wasn't accepting of them and they needed to wait for their parent to unfortunately not be alive anymore. Maybe they had to wait until they were financially stable enough to leave their family situations, especially people of color who have more complicated family relationships. Like when you're a Chinese kid, you don't, you have filial piety to like your parents for the rest of time, you know, like my parents are still a part of my family. If I was still living in China, I would still be in my family's house, you know? And so especially immigrant children like there's a language barrier there are people who love you and don't understand a large part of your life and who you are and that's just never going to change and so it's not until your grandparents your parents you know die in your 30s and you finally get to come out that you like you get to have that new adult i'm going to college everything is new this is my new personality like moment that happens so much later for people so so often that like that would be such a fertile ground Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really interesting, and I I do think that like the that graphic novels is really kind of pushing so much of that as well, and that's something that you look at. Do you see that taking on some of the those just concepts and ideas in a different way? That's really exciting for you. Or is it, can you give us insight on that? 
Yeah, I think I have settled into being pretty comfortably in the sort of middle grade YA graphic novel space. I see it a lot, honestly, in in the types of pitches I'm getting are, you know, those stories that like, they look more simplistic, they look more structurally like what a YA would be, what a middle grade would be, but the characters are 25, 26, 27, they're dealing with like a loved one who has kids, which like is not a thing that people generally deal with when they are a YA protagonist. I think because of that thing of like so many queer people are coming to their stories much later and they didn't get to have that sort of like coming of age at the time at which the bookshelf thinks that we should have a coming of age. And I I tend to not drift towards those stories, mostly because they tend to, to be sort of quiet and introspective. I think I tend not to go towards those stories because they tend to be more quiet and sort of not solipsistic, but like, you know, you're sitting and thinking and you're staring at Mars and Mars is beautiful and you're thinking about how your life could have been and who you really want to love, which is just not sort of my, I like things that are more heisty and murdery and things of that ilk, but I think it's it's definitely a space that a lot of people tread. So what do you do when you're not writing? I mean, when you're not agenting? I play a lot of D&D. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about it last night and I play up I play upwards of nine hours of D&D a week. And then I think about it for upwards of about the same amount of time. So I'm very not interesting if I, if it's not outside of D&D. I bake a lot. I torture my plants. I play a lot of video games. You torture your plants. I do. Oh my God. I had to replant, I think, four of them yet yesterday because I just overwatered them so badly. Well, at and least not, you knew to do that. I probably shouldn't have like, repotted them either. I should have just left them alone. I should have just put them outside and not dealt with them. <laughs> Mine just died. So I admire that you knew too exactly um, to do that. <laughs> so what's something you wish writers knew on our side of the desk? Yeah, I think something that's been coming up a lot in my inbox recently is that I neither can nor want to represent everyone. And I think that's something that should be very free for for authors. I get a lot of queries that seem sort of, especially the people that come back to you or come back with multiple different different stories, it's sort of this mentality of like, it's just a math problem of at some point I'll get the right manuscript, I'll get the right concepts, a math problem will work and then we will have a, a relationship. But I, and this is not true for every agent. Some agents just want to work on manuscripts and not to be, cruel, but like, don't really care who you are. And that's fine. But I work pretty closely with, um, with my authors. I'm an incredibly editorial agent. So I want somebody who's going to trust me to take their manuscript and absolutely rip it apart and make them rewrite it. So I don't, I don't think that that's going to fit for everyone. And so it's not really a math problem. It's if you've submitted to me multiple, multiple, multiple times, and I keep saying, you know, this isn't working for me or this concept isn't working for me or your approach often, it's not even the manuscripts, it's just sort of the, the voice and the approach you're taking to something. It's not about how much can you break that agent down and what can you do to finally make that work. It's about your efforts are better spent elsewhere and there's going to be somebody who's going to really want to work with you at some point and it's just not that person, you know, and a lot of queries come with, you know, well, you shouldn't miss out on this and you're like, I'm not missing out on anything. That's not how I think about it. I I want to work on personal relationships, and sometimes that just doesn't work out. And I I actually really I just just so you know that from like the writer's perspective, I think that just hearing that from you 
one, I think we all can respect that and that like you're living your truth and, and being with the kind of work that you want to be with and the type of people you want to be with. And that's where the magic happens for voices. So thank you. And thank you for being honest about that. I don't think we've ever heard that on the Academy before. Um, we've heard, you know, it's like the right story at the right time, but that it really is like about the personal relationships with you. And I think that's going to take you far just, uh, you know, in your career. So well done. And just going to something that you said, you said, if you're, you need someone who can trust you to tear the manuscript apart and put it back together again, that's not just anyone. You can't do that with just anyone. I hate to think what would happen if, you know, I just drew someone out of my query pile randomly and said, okay, we're going to work on this together and we're going to make it work. And 47 drafts later, maybe it'll work. We don't know. I don't think we'd even get through three drafts together if we weren't compatible. You know, I'd suggest one thing and they'd take it in another direction and it would just be a a struggle of visions. And if if Mm -hmm. we have two different visions, we're not going to be be able to edit together. Especially because, and I've... Thankfully, I've only run into this once, but sometimes you give people pretty massive revisions. And I, I believe in all of my revisions. I think that I, not that I'm right because it's a subjective industry, but like, I think that I made intelligent decisions that we both agreed on and they took it a certain way. And then we got rejections back that said, everything you did for this was actually bad. And the first version was, was better. You have to trust me to, you know, like, you gave me your baby and then I destroyed it and made you do it a different way. And then exactly what I told you to do is what somebody else rejected it for. That's a big bond of trust, you know, to continue working with that person. Yeah. Especially since it's going to be painful at some point. It's going okay, to be you guys difficult. brought us down. Brought <laughs> no, us down there. no, but I think I think ultimately it's a message of hope because it's look at all these things we can do together. We can basically walk through fire together and make it out. And like, you know, that's the kind of relationship we're looking for. And I think that, you know, a lot of the time when I say no, it's not because I think it won't work. I think it's just because I want to make sure that that's the kind of relationship I'm having. And that's such a high standard. Yep. But that's a standard of compatibility versus a standard of good enough, if that makes sense. Yeah. So on that note, okay, so tell us something that isn't <laughs> as scary or hopeless as writer's fear it is. Actually, pretty much the same thing. Revisions can be super exciting if you're working on it with somebody who gets your vision and who gets the story really well. Because, And this is this is something that, I mean, like, it's hard and you ha- I have to take this into consideration all the time. I hate revisions. I hate when people give me back things because I have to, like, like with all of my academic stuff, like, somebody gives me back seven pages of revisions, which I will regularly give to people. And I have to just, like, fury close the email and walk around and just stomp around for a little while and be just like, no, they're no- they don't get it. I'm doing everything right. Like, how dare they say that? And then, like, once I've settled down two weeks later, I can open the email <laughs> again and be like, no, no, they're actually right about everything. I need to do all of these things. But when it works out, it's at, at its best, it's just ideation. It's just infinite asking what ifs. You're saying, this doesn't work, but what if you did this or think more about this? And then you're like, but no, I did it perfectly. It all, it all lines up. The perfect puzzle piece of my manuscript is great. I, I can't change this because everything else will, will like, you know, cascade out of that. But then you think about it and you sit down and you're like, oh, you know what? What if that person wasn't there? What if that that storyline changed? What if I added another character here? And then you're back to ideating. You're back to doing the thing that is fun about writing, which is thinking about what if and how can I do this and how can I make this cool? Yeah. 
We have a question from the audience about submissions. When speaking of the voice, how does it resonate with your experience as an agent selecting work to represent? I think voice is very, voice is a big thing for me. And this sort of relates back to another question that you had sort of asked me to prep ahead of time was just sort of like, what is the thing you start with? I start with voice. And this is something that I do for both writing myself and for projects is that I start with which memes can I throw on this character to define what their voice is going to be for the rest of time. There are characters that I still reference back to that I'm like, they are the Miles Morales, like throwing a bag out of the window and being like, bad, bad instinct. Like that is the core of that character. And I will always come back to that. And so I think, yeah, I think voice is so fundamental to what, and I just finished Harrow the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. And like, that is a, a book that like voice, voice, voice all the time. It's just voice, you know? And it's got a lot of substance. It's it's my holy grail of books, but it's got a lot of substance around that. But voice comes through so strongly. And if you didn't like the voice of it, it was it's not a work that's going to work for you. The Martian is one of those books that I actually haven't read, but hit every bestseller list. Was a movie made out of it. One of my I don't really read a lot of literary, but one of my friends does a lot. And he opened it, read the first line, and closed it again. It's just like I can't do this. And I was like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. It's true, though. Sometimes you go to the bookstore and you open something that looks perfectly lovely that everyone likes, and you're just like, uh, no, close, put mm. it back. And I'm sure everyone who's here has done that. And so if you've done that, you understand that not every voice is for every reader. Yeah. Well, and I think in turn, you can read a book that has an amazing voice and get halfway through and realize that that, that you're only reading it for the voice and the plot can be off, you know? Like, mm-hmm. the, the, it can go the other way, which is interesting, too. Um you know, but like honing your voice and having your voice uniquely your own and having unique voice per book can be really important. And it's like, it's really your, your number one tool as a writer, I think. Interesting. And so going back to just voice and another question that was put out there to you was real. it was about graphic novels, obviously voicey, just, <laughs> you know, just because, but like what, and we, ha- we haven't had a whole, we've had a couple of times we've had people talk about like how you want graphic novel submissions to come into you. Can people um, bring them, like, can you tell us what you want it to look like and if you need an artist attached and what your thoughts are on that? Yeah, actually, this is what I should have done for my, uh, what have I changed my opinion about since being in the industry? Because when you're on, because I also do, um, I do graphic novels myself on the sort of on my other persona. And when you're, pitching it from the like author perspective you're like no one's going to look at this if it's just a bunch of text I have to have pictures and if you're a writer and you're not an artist that means instantly getting somebody to do do the art for it and attach to attach it to the pitch and I think that that can be super helpful just to sort of visually grasp what you want it to look like and what the, the interest of the person is looking at it but at the same time it's much better to come with a script only unless you are full package already because like first, second random house graphic, they have a very set style of how they want all of their books to look. And so they would prefer from an editor's perspective to get a script and then pair them with an, uh, an artist, especially because graphic novel, it's sort of the difference between being a singer songwriter and being a musical theater person <laughs> of you need to, it's not just being a good artist. It's being a good artist who can take revisions, who can have 17 people touching your manuscript and being like, well, actually I don't think this panel works. And you're like, shut up. Don't, don't tell me that, but you have to listen to them. And so for them, it's more comfortable if they can say, you know, 
here's an artist that we've worked with before. We know they're really good. We know that they have time versus here's an artist that I paid $50 on the internet to who, <laughs> you know, is probably a student. Uh, this is, this is super rude, but they often they are students because they are the ones that have time to do that for you and to take the commissions when you don't have any money and they might not have the chops or they might not have the time or they might not have the rigor to do a full book. It's much better to come with a project that's not already wedded to like seven people. One of my best friends does graphic novel and he does this all the time. He brings like seven people teams to his pitches and I'm just like, you're driving me crazy, but I'm not his agent. So it doesn't matter. But well, Oh yeah. So that, that was sort of the, the background of it, but pitches, if you can get, you know, a couple sample images that are not, what you are sold on and there are not final pages, whether or not you are the author or the artist, you should have a little bit about who you are and who the author and or the artist. You should have a short pitch. You should, I think about pitch, and this should be true for all queries. I like to think of it as like a short, a medium, and a long, and you should always have all three of those. And then you can just infinitely cut and paste and never have to write another query, which is not true, but at least it does the bulk of the work for you. You should have a short synopsis, you should have a full synopsis, and you should have a breakdown of characters. For some reason, when you said that, I was thinking elevator, taxi, airplane. (laughs) That works. That's really funny. Imagine the poor agent who's on a five-hour flight with you, and they're like, and then (laughs) she lifts the sandwich. (laughs) Yikes. So if you had Google-level funding, what would you do? I would either make animes of 90s yaoi that wasn't soul-sucking and bad because they all are or i would be uh the the thing that i wanted i had a weird weird childhood where i wanted to do two things and i wanted to work at tokyo pop and be a publisher of manga cool because that's a nerdy thing to want and i wanted to be a designer for asian boy bands tour outfits Ooh, oh my gosh that's a great job so yes somebody has it and i yeah. want their job somebody has to do it <laughs> Are they anonymous? Do we know who they are? Or do they have I'm big sure followings? I could look th- I'm sure they have big followings. Weibo confuses me even more than Twitter does, so I never go over there. But I'm sure they have. Oh my god! I'm sure they're just as famous as choreographers, you know? Huh. But I don't know. I never thought about that. That's a great job. I'm a big costume person, so, you know. Me I too. think about it all the time. I have an old foot-powered sewing machine that I used to make my Ren Faire costumes when I was a kid. Nice. So. nice. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Very you guys. Good. Sorry, Julie, we're nerding out. We'll stop. We'll bring it back. I know, I know. You know it's like, I can make stuff. Sort of. <laughs> <Not really. laughs> Those are great answers. Yeah. Um, so do you have any early memories of your days in New York City or in the industry that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, I, I have a hard time with like my memories of New York because nostalgia makes everything like so beautiful and lovely and like it was fun, you know? And like, it's because I'm, I'm in Oakland now for Mm -hmm. reference, but so much of what I love about New York is so like inexorably tied up with what makes it also horrible and soul sucking to live in. (laughs) And like, I, so when I first got to the publishing industry, it was me and my girlfriend and we, you know, we did it just skin cheap. Like we had four people in a house who were paying like $500 each, which is just nothing. I had, we didn't have drawers. I made drawers out of the cardboard that our, all of our boxes came in. Wow. <laughs> and then my cat would rip them apart. Yeah. We didn't have a closet. Like it was nutty. And I did what everyone does, which is like have three jobs at all times. Like I remember coming. So I lived in uh, East Harlem for the first year that I was there. And I had a job at a gelato shop in Chelsea. That's um, a commute. 
yeah, it was a big commute. And then if it's a commute at 2 a.m. when they've closed the shop and all of um, the local trains have decided that they're just going to like sort of shut down for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. So I remember like getting on the train from Chelsea all the way or just walking all the way over to the east side and then taking the six up and then like somewhere between like 59th and 100th, like they would always be like, oh, you know, we're going to st- stall it for however long we want to and there's one other person asleep on the other side of the train and then you get out of the the station and you wave at all the bouncers taking their smoke breaks outside and then I didn't sleep at all because we were in the room with the the pipes in the winter um, and I had a new kitten who was just uh, that was a terrible choice that I brought upon myself and then I would get up at eight o'clock in the morning and be back at central station for my other job so where I then you know applied for publishing jobs furiously (laughs) but so it's yeah. like mellower in Oakland. Are you finding that it's significantly mellower? And maybe sort of there was I think it was Don Wong Song had posted a, like that TikTok of like what people say when they move to move out of New York. Like everyone goes to sleep by like five o'clock. Everything's <laughs> closed at nine o'clock. The the last call is at one. What what are you doing? <laughs> it is yeah. yeah it is kind it's of like hard. That, it's, yeah. New York is a very fun place to be poor and young in because there's so much stuff to do for free, even if it's just watching rich people do things mm-hmm. that That's cost money amazing. and you just watch them do it. And um, there's so much free food. Yeah. Yeah. And I miss I miss being able to go to I felt kind of bad at the beginning of the pandemic because it's actually worked out relatively well for me because it's so much easier and so much more fun to say like let's go get drinks or let's go do karaoke or like let's do something to meet people after work so you can do all that socializing and since I had sort of pieced out of the publishing industry for two years I when I first came back I was like this is going to be such a slog to remind people who I am and that I was there and I was you know I was an assistant like I didn't meet that many people I didn't change that many people's lives that they'll remember me and thankfully everyone was at home alone in quarantine just desperately wanting to be on the phone with somebody and I was like this is this is actually working out very well for me because yeah, I miss being able to just like socialize with your friends and like go get a drink after work and it's not California. So you don't have to drive home, you know? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. We talked, we've talked a lot about how, how this is going to really change publishing and just the connections that people have made, you know, over the, over zoom and how it's still the real connections, you know, amazing. So if you were a super, if you were a superhero, what would be your superpower is the next question. This is at this point socially irresponsible, but I would just want to summon a table and chairs anywhere, just anywhere. I'm just a librarian at heart. I just want to be able to be like, can I have a comfy armchair right here? There it is. I like that. I feel like armchairs are very important and underrated. You know, you need that to focus on your reading. But going back to what we were talking about a second ago, I do think the industry hopefully will be more open to people working from more places and hopefully that will make it so that you know, there's just more access, not having to live in New York City, not having to build furniture out of cardboard boxes. And I, I, I could tell you guys stories. I won't of all the crazy things that I did in my first few weeks in New York uh, to save money. But it's such an interesting moment in time for so many reasons. And I'm hoping that this means that positive change will take effect. But that leads us to our next question. Uh, Sandra asks, what opportunities does this new civil rights movement provide for writers of color? I think hopefully, so I know that we saw in the first couple of weeks of the, the BLM protests and then, you know, everyone opened their doors and everyone was just sort of pouring this like outpouring of, you know, come talk to us, come talk to us, which was, you know, I think 
I'm just going to be rude to everyone. It was just super performative for most people. You know, like a lot of it was just like, don't ask people of color to be doing more work for free right now. They can't. They're just trying to stay alive and open their eyes in the morning, you know? And I think there's been a very quick, like shuttering of a lot of that support of, you know, this, the windows are closed or, you know, we're, we actually were asking for all of that, but we're going to turn everyone down. Like, I think there was a lot of very quick turnaround and people being like, what can I do? What can I do to support? And then saying, actually, we, if for to be the nicest you could possibly be, they just don't have the capacity, you know, like mm-hmm. you can't open your submissions to everyone and leave them open indefinitely for reasons. Like you didn't have the capacity before this, you don't have the capacity now. And I think that there is a really big opportunity for people to capitalize on the fact that I'm hoping that this is a a big reason to take to traditional acquisitions meetings and say like, look, there's tons of people who are doing a huge outpouring of support for and really, really begging for authors of color who can tell authentic stories about people of color. And I think that there is a lot of opportunity for authors, but there is a lot of onus on the publishing industry itself to keep sustainable growth and keep sustainable support for the people of color in the industry itself, because that was a, a, another big swing, especially with the sort of publishing paid me conversation of like, there's, it's not that we need more internships and it's not that we need more paid internships. It's that we need to work on retention and everyone wants a senior editor who is a person of color that they can say like, look, we've got a black person on staff, but they didn't do the work to either support them to that point or they didn't do the the work to just wait for them. Sometimes you just have to wait because there's such bad retention rates that like you need to, to commit to doing that work and making sure your interns can then move into assistantships and they can move into editorial and they can move into marketing. And I think that there is a really huge opportunity for people in, in, I think, sort of a similar way that worked out very well for Angie Thomas with The Hate You Give of she was really, really out there with like Div Pit and she was there with Twitter pitches and she was saying, you know, I have a story that's really relevant to the time. Do you think it would work? And it ended up working great for her and it ended up work, opening a lot of doors for other people. And I think that that is very much going to be true of right now. And I think the onus is on the publishing industry to support that and make that sustainable. We're not an industry that's easy to break into. And when I talk with people like, okay, we're getting you ready for your interview. Let's say this in your cover letter. Let's say this in your resume. It drives me crazy that there are so many tricks that people would only know if they spoke with somebody. And that's ridiculous. And I know that, again, as you mentioned, it's a capacity issue, right? Every time there's a job opening, it's there are so, so many things to, to read, to go through, to choose from, hopefully to choose someone you can hire after the internship. So I understand that on a capacity level, it, it, it's hard to express to everyone what those tricks are and how to do them and how to make your work stand out. And of course, if everyone's work is standing out in the same way, then it doesn't stand out anymore. But just that there are so many things that require a conversation like that is is just really frustrating to me yeah. because not everyone has time to have that conversation. Not everyone knows someone to have that conversation. We shouldn't require that step just so that you can apply to maybe have a position where you work for free. Yeah. I went to one of the publishing programs and I feel, I feel always very much on the fence about the value of them because I, in in an indirect but still direct way, got my first job in publishing because of a connection I had made there. 
because I had my I had hooked my girlfriend up with somebody at Scholastic Clubs to do an intern or an informational interview in marketing, and then like two and a half months later, at which point it's New York, you've gotten a job or you've died. He called her and was like, "Hey, there's a job in cross channel and trade." do you want it? And she was like, no, I got a job because I didn't want to die. But I do know somebody who wants a job. And so I got that job. So it was one of those, like, it was an indirect chain, but it was directly from a person I met in the publishing program. But at the same time, it was a lot of money and it was an overwhelmingly white group. And there was 127 of us. So our when they like let us out in June, 127 of us had identical resumes. Mm -hmm. How how much does that do for you? You know? So, and it's, it's a, that is also a conversation about privilege of like, who can do that? Who can just move to New York for six weeks and who yeah. knows that they can do that. You know? I still have I mean, the dream of the, subsidized housing. I still have the dream of yeah, subsidized housing. We for interns. About that. <laughs> and I actually, this is a great time. This is the beginning of the school year. I'd like to give a shout out to the teachers that are, are telling all children, you have a story to tell, you know, you could work in this industry. And I think that it starts there. And I think the teacher in me sees a lot of kids that are really talented, you know, you know, 25 year olds who've just found themselves, who've just found their, their voice in their life and, and walking into themselves that they can be this person, you know, that, that like, that is something systematically in this country, everyone should have an equal voice, you know, it's really important. And especially, you know, this time of year and with everything going on that we just need to remind the teachers out there, they're listening that we're, we're, we're here to try to support you guys and, and your, your path to help readers and future writers and future industry professionals. So a lot of, a lot of interesting and hopefully good things being put into place, but a lot of work to do for sure. It would be great What's also your- if we had more Zooms into classrooms so we could, you know, talk to more classrooms about publishing. Oh, you know because I'm thinking about it. I'm I- thinking about it all the time. I mean, this was not something I knew existed when I was in public school. The, nobody okay. talked about publishing or how it worked. I did not even yeah. know it, about it until college. So I have a list, you guys. I, 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 I <laughs> yes, no, we have I'm a bunch of events it. coming up soon. Um, um, we have a big file of uh, things that will be coming ideas. up soon. Um, so, so what's your number one tip for writers? I think my number one tip for writers is to figure out what makes you tick and what makes you really excited about writing and then just lean into that. My girlfriend's also a writer and for her, it's relationship dynamics. That's what she starts with. So she thinks like, today we're going to do enemies to lovers. And just mm. ideates off that. I, I've said this before. I, I work with humor. So like what I start with is like, what are the relevant memes to this? Which TikTok am I going to watch 700 times to get the essence of this one character? And that's sort that. of where I start. And then that is what keeps me energized when I'm still like, you know, it's the first six months are like, this is great. This is the thing that I can do to procrastinate, but sort of feel like I'm doing good for my other projects. And then two years in, you're like, I've been doing this for two years. Like two years was my entire life when I was two years old. How am I? (laughs) And then that's the thing that like you, it brings it back for you to like, there's always the question of like, is it inspiration? Is it skill? Is it just hard work? It's kind of all of them, but you need to still like, what's the thing that's going to make you love it and want to keep doing it at the end of the day. I've been seeing a lot of advice lately to think about what is most exciting to you. And that's how you choose what you'll do next. And I think yeah. I think that's good advice because we're often told the opposite. We're told do everything in a linear fashion, do what is due next. And I actually think it's more efficient to follow your excitement and your interest. 
and to do what only you can do. Yeah. Awesome. I'm so happy you can join us. Can you tell us how people can submit to you if, if you are open yeah. to queries? You can find me on Twitter at Melissa. It's not a great handle. I'll come up with one at some point that's more usable. The Ladderbird website will always have uh, all of the agents links for I use Query Manager, Query Tracker. So those will all be there. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, of course. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.